this week's Fireside Chat. I'm Lisa Stearns and I'm here with Dr. Tim Cross, our Senior Vice President. Um, we are inching closer to increasing our presence in the workplace and we'll be talking about the steps necessary to achieve this goal and we'll also be welcoming our special guest today, Dr. Spencer Gregg, who is a physician and director of the Student Health Center here at UT Knoxville. So just a few reminders, remember, uh, as always, to keep your audio muted. Uh, that does help everyone else hear the conversation. You can use the chat function on Zoom to ask any questions. And you, of course, can publicly post your question or you can send it privately to me if you'd rather do that. Um, a recording of this session will be made and posted to the UTIA coronavirus website. And you can find that link on our homepage at utia.tennessee.edu. That is our new login for our website. So you might wanna make note of that. So Tim, preparations and plans are continuing to increase our office access and workplace presence beginning next week. So what is it that we should all be expecting? Thanks uh, for kicking us off once again, Lisa, and, and uh, thanks to each of you for joining us once again. Uh, gosh, it doesn't seem like it's been a week already, but uh, I know you all have been busy. I know there's a lot of activities going on, and, and as Lisa said, we're working diligently on plans to uh, really uh, ramp up our, our presence uh, in terms of the workplace uh, and, and certainly plans to welcome students back on campus as well. So I thought today would be a great, great opportunity to uh, just review a few of those points. And then in just a little while, uh, look forward to uh, welcoming uh, Dr. Spencer Gregg to, to visit with us too. So let me start out by saying uh, at this point, uh, each of our offices should have a plan and, and maybe it's a written plan or maybe it's a mental plan, but each office should have a plan in terms of how to approach uh, increasing the access to our facilities. Uh, in some cases, that may mean uh, we're going to be unlocking the doors, such as will happen on campus on August 10th. In some cases, it may be a matter of uh, communicating with the public or with our clients or with others how to access our facilities. Perhaps it's a phone call uh, or uh, a text message to, uh, to indicate that we're here, we're, we're uh, needing some support or some service. So uh, it, whatever shape it takes and whatever makes the most sense, uh, I think the important thing is, is that we are uh, making sure that our services, our programs, our education uh, is accessible and that we're carrying out our mission uh, to the extent possible. I know it feels like an uncertain time to be doing that, but I also know that there's probably ne seldom been a, a period of time when there was a, uh, any greater of a need than what we're experiencing right now. So uh, I think we've got to do our part, but we've got to do it in a, in a safe and, and uh, risk-reduced uh, manner, uh, and I'm confident that we can do that. We, we're really, basically, everybody said, well, what's it mean to have our office more accessible? And in my mind, what that means is during sort of regular business hours, if somebody needs to uh, drop off a soil sample, if somebody needs to uh, check on their course assignment for the coming uh, semester, uh, if someone uh, wants to determine how to get a, uh, a grant uh, uh, reviewed, they, that the offices that can help provide or support that service are, are open, uh, again, in some way, shape, or form. And so uh, we don't all have to be physically present for that to take place. We can rotate uh, presence uh, in the office so that we do uh, manage the number of people that are on site at any one point in time. But uh, we can also say that our offices are open and that we're, we're carrying out, again, our education, research, and extension duties uh, as, as we're asked to do and, and as I know we all want to do. So uh, that's really what we're talking about there. Uh, make sure uh, if you have any questions about what the plans are for your office, first contact your direct supervisor. And if, if there's some question or, or lack of uh, 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 agreement there, then I think follow up with uh, either a regional director, uh, a, uh, someone in the dean's office, someone in our human resources department. Don't just let it lie. Let's address any areas of concern. And, and as I've said before, let us know what those concerns are so that we can address them. So I'll pause right there in terms of uh, what we've been doing in terms of plans. And actually, let me make one last point, Lisa. 
Uh, I know you're all thinking, does this guy live in a vacuum? Does he not know that we've got a lot of cases still going on and yet we're still moving ahead? Uh, so I, I'll, I'll be the first to admit I, I live in a bit of a different world. <laughs> Uh, you all know that, but uh, I also will tell you, I've been watching the data. I've seen that uh, we do have a number of cases across the state and in most of our counties. Uh, but I also believe uh, following CDC guidance, uh, following the practices we've outlined, uh, that we can continue to move ahead uh, in, a, in a positive manner. So what you just said, of course, um, illustrates the whole idea of personal responsibility in all of this as well. So how can each of us be responsible for doing our individual part to manage through this pandemic? Yeah, this is one of those cases where we have to help each other. We have to be responsible for each other. And uh, that, that applies to so many of the practices that we talk about that every one of us have to do. And it's, it's not always about doing it to protect yourself. It's also to do it to protect uh, your workers, uh, your coworkers, uh, your friends and your family. So you know, I have to say this every fireside chat, right? Uh, you've got to wash your hands. You've got to clean uh, the surfaces in your work area. You've got to wear a mask. Uh, we have to stay six feet apart uh, whenever possible. And we've got to stay at home if we're feeling sick. Uh, those things really are, are must-dos, and if we all do that personally, then uh, I think we'll take responsibility for, for helping to take care of one another. So there are many questions, of course, that we all have about our health and how to stay safe during this pandemic, and we have a guest today that um, can answer some of these questions for us. Yeah, we do. And you know, uh, you all have heard uh, stories like this. Uh, I, I'm really pleased to have Dr. Greg with us because as my children uh, might say, uh, we actually have a real doctor with us today, not, uh, not, a, not a fellow that has a PhD in agricultural economics. So uh, really pleased to have uh, Dr. Spencer Greg with us. Spencer, I'm not going to do a long intro, but I am going to let folks know that you got your uh, MD degree from the University of Tennessee Health Science Center, so he's truly one of our own. Uh, he's uh, served uh, in a number of different roles, uh, including uh, a residency in internal medicine uh, at the UT uh, Medical Center. He also served with, as a physician at the Tennessee Valley Medical Group, uh, served uh, as a medical officer in the Army and is currently clinical assistant professor at the UT Medical Center and also, as I mentioned, director of the Student Health Center uh, and really a leader since uh, mid-March of the uh, university's uh, emergency operations center and all the plans and preparations we've made for COVID-19. So if you want to know the brains behind the organization when it comes to COVID-19, <laughs> it's Dr. Spencer Gregg. I really appreciate Spencer giving up some time to join us here today. So thanks, Dr. Gregg. And I'll just ask you to make any opening remarks you want uh, and also just say look for a first question one of the things we always hear about is masks so as you uh, make a few opening remarks and then think about uh, uh, if you would t addressing are masks really beneficial do we really have to wear them when do we wear them when do we not have to wear them all those questions that I know you've heard a thousand times but uh, if you would just uh, help us with that as well. Sure, Tim, it's great to be with you guys today. Uh, I appreciate the opportunity to speak with you. Um, just to let you know, uh, my background is not in pandemic response. So uh, I can remember my first duty assignment as a medical officer in the US Army. I was a brand new captain, just finished one year of internship over here at UT uh, Medical Center in Knoxville. Got a notification from the Department of Defense that I would be the officer in charge of the U.S. Army Cocosolo Health Clinic in the Republic of Panama, and that I would be the only Army officer there. And uh, I thought, man, there's not any of these diseases that uh, I'm familiar with that are going to be here in East Tennessee. And I can remember in medical school thinking, I'm not going to have to know all these tropical things. I'm going to be seeing folks in East Tennessee. And uh, sometimes we just don't know what uh, to expect down the road. Uh, so. I've learned a lot uh, and have worked closely with the Knox County Health Department here over the past several months uh, and trying to help our campus come up to speed in regard with the appropriate public health measures to try to keep our faculty, staff, and students safe. Um, and, you know, early on during this pandemic response, 
there was the issue of whether or not we should be wearing masks. And the, uh, the big concern at, uh, at the on onset of that was the uh, supply chain and the lack of, of uh, masks that were available. And the general thought from the CDC at that time was that uh, they may not provide enough um, uh, protection uh, for us as individuals. And the supply chain was such that we didn't want medical providers in the hospital setting to run out of the supplies that they needed. And so initially they were saying that we didn't need to be wearing masks like we saw so many people over in, the, uh, in other countries that were doing at that time. Since that time, we've learned a lot. And uh, some studies have recently been published uh, and the CDC has now uh, turned course and are recommending that we wear masks, uh, certainly in all public places and in any type of congregate setting. Essentially when we're not isolated to ourselves or with our immediate family members is the ideal time to be wearing a mask. Not only does it uh, give us some degree of protection, but it also primarily is a means of us protecting others. Another thing that we've learned about coronavirus is that uh, there are certainly a, a large number of individuals that can be asymptomatic or what we sometimes refer to as pre-symptomatic. And those individuals are quite capable of spreading the infection. And the problem is you don't know when you're in that condition. And so, uh, you know, I might feel fine, but I could actually be a spreader of the virus. And so by wearing the mask, it uh, prevents uh, others from potentially getting that infection from me. And so that was one of the primary reasons that we made the switch to encouraging people to wear masks, and we certainly would encourage them to do so. Now, I can tell you, for the past uh, several months, I've been wearing a mask, and uh, it's not a lot of fun. I uh, haven't had it, have it on uh, all day. Um, and so you begin to spot some places where you can kind of cut corners. Uh, and as long as it's, uh, you're doing it uh, and you're not putting other people at risk, then I'm certainly okay with that. Uh, I can tell you what we've been doing here at, uh, on the campus of UT Knoxville. Uh, generally, uh, and this, this holds for my staff and the Student Health Center as well, um, if you're gonna be isolated in an office, then there's no need to have your mask on. You're in there by yourself, your door's closed. You don't have to worry about somebody uh, being in there with you. Uh, there's no need to have that mask on. Just like if you're driving in your car down the street, you don't really need to be wearing that mask. But uh, someone knocks on your door, uh, just out of courtesy, that mask ought to come up and it ought to be put on. Uh, someone enters your office. Uh, it may be that you're, you're actually have enough distance between yourself and them when they have a seat that maybe you don't really have to be wearing a mask, but out of courtesy, you would certainly want to ask, hey, if, if it's okay with you, we'll take our mask off. That's, that's certainly not a problem as long as you've got more than six feet of physical distance. Uh, but outside of that very isolated situation, generally speaking, anytime that you're uh, here on campus, especially or out in public, that mask ought to be on. You never know when somebody's potentially going to come within six feet of you. You've got control over you, but you don't have any control over anybody else. So wearing that mask in those situations is ideal. You're walking or hiking up in the Smokies, you've not seen anybody for the past two miles. I think you're probably okay to drop that mask down. Uh, but uh, whenever you start to hear footsteps in the distance, uh, of course, if it's a bear, you probably want to leave it off and run. But if it's, uh, if it's, your, if it's some other fellow hiker, then uh, you need to be slipping it back up on there. Great, thanks very much. You know, uh, a year ago, I would have never thought we'd be uh, educating one another about mask etiquette, but uh, I think, uh, you know, if we'll all follow those uh, courteous practices, uh, it, again, it'll, it'll benefit everyone. Thanks uh, for that. So even, even expecting that if we follow all these practices, there are gonna be some positive cases, uh, you know, uh, throughout uh, society, not, not just speaking about our institute or about our campus or about uh, uh, the state of Tennessee, we're going to see positive cases. And when those occur, obviously the people that, that test positive are in many cases going to have been in some of our buildings or facilities. Uh, we know that we're closing offices when, when uh, those positive cases occur, but had some asked me, gosh, shouldn't we close the whole building and send everyone home when there's a positive case? Can, can you help explain just a little bit about the sort of health basis for uh, leaving our buildings open and yet closing the spaces? Yes, that was a question that we came up, you know, that first came up to us here the, at the uh, campus level because of the number of buildings here in UT Knoxville. And 
Uh, although there were going to be fewer people here, there was a concern about, you know, what do you, what do you need to do from that standpoint? So a lot of time, uh, thought and research went into uh, looking at that and the decision was made that actually what's most important is to, is to concentrate your efforts on the areas of that building where the individual that was infected was most likely to be located. And uh, most of the time you're going to be able to get that from the individual themselves. Sometimes uh, if they were sick, we were able to reach out to their supervisor, determine what their routines were within that area. Uh, what we've done is uh, through the um, uh, daily self uh, check app that we have for our employees, uh, whenever they indicate that they're sick or they've tested positive, uh, we'll ask them to go ahead and complete a self-isolation form. And on that form, we ask them where they were last located on campus. If it's been within the past seven days that they've been on campus, we're going to want to uh, isolate that space. We'll close it down and do some enhanced cleaning and disinfection on that. Um, it's just that uh, the common areas also need special attention. So not only are we interested in the exact spaces or lab spaces that or office spaces that an individual was in, but then also uh, having uh, knowledge of where the uh, common areas that they uh, moved across in order to get to those. And then we come back and do some special cleaning of, the, of those areas as well. The truth is the disinfectants that are used now uh, just for routine cleaning uh, are going to be adequate in regard to eradicating a COVID-19 virus. Uh, but that enhanced cleaning that we do when we close the space down is really just more focused cleaning with the same disinfectants essentially uh, on those uh, on the spaces that were more likely to have been in contact with that individual. So we're really just trying to do the best we can to help mitigate the potential spread of the uh, of the infection through surfaces. I will yeah. tell you that uh, recent studies have indicated that that's probably the least likely way that you're going to pick up this particular infection. Great, thanks for uh, helping to, to clarify that, Spencer. Appreciate it. So of course, everybody uh, asks me every week, are you really bringing 29,000 students back to campus? And uh, you know, I think the answer is yes. Uh, and for most of the uh, universities around the country, that is the answer, but it, it, we're bringing them back to certainly a different uh, campus experience, different classroom experience and so forth. But uh, thinking about your, your role in particular, are you ready uh, in, the, in the health center uh, to welcome 29,000 students back to campus? Well, we certainly hope so. We, uh, we, we've been trying our best to prepare. Um, I just met with uh, uh, Dr. Buchanan with Knox County Health Department uh, this morning. Uh, we've gone over our plans, what, we're, uh, what the things that we've done to try to ramp up in preparation for this. Um, and I can tell you, Tim, you talked about 29,000 students coming back to campus. One of those is mine. Uh, actually, on move-in day on the 9th, uh, I won't be here as uh, the health center director. I'll be here as Ann's dad, and we'll be helping her move into one of the dorms. And I feel very comfortable with the measures that we've taken here on campus in that regard. I was, I, you know, honestly uh, concerned about the potential for the student health center to be able to, to handle the potential increased number of patients that we see. You know, ideally, or, or typically in a, in a usual year, we'll see anywhere from 35 to 40,000 office visits through the Student Health Center here on campus. And you can certainly imagine with just, just the concern that uh, individuals might have, you know, here in East Tennessee, this time of year, especially in the fall, I mean, coughs, runny noses, sore throats, I mean, that's just part of being an East Tennessean. And uh, what we would be concerned about is the fear that people would have is that some of those uh, symptoms may reflect a COVID infection and that that would push more of them to the student health center. So we had some meetings in regard to that, discussed it with the health department and with the uh, UT system. And the decision was made to hire some additional staff to uh, help us with that potential uh, increase in volume. And then additionally hiring staff that specifically are directed at our COVID response. Uh, that would include someone to help coordinate our campus surveillance program someone to help coordinate our contact tracing program here on campus, and then dedicated personnel for mainly just doing mass COVID testing if that were to be called for. Uh, we are planning to have extended hours at the Student Health Center as well. That would include, include a little bit later in the evenings that we would be open 
on weekdays and then time on the weekends that we'll be available too. The other thing that we've done is uh, to try to increase our capacity for COVID-19 testing. And you've heard on the news where it can take a while to get COVID-19 tests back. And, you know, there during the summer, it kind of got a little bit easier to get the results back. And now as things have started picking up, it's gotten a little bit worse. We uh, have purchased a, a Cepheid uh, machine that we can use in our lab to actually do COVID-19 testing at the Student Health Center. We've not taken receipt of that yet, but we are supposed to get it here at the beginning of August. So we hope to have that up and running uh, by the time students are back on campus. We also went ahead and contracted with three separate uh, outside reference labs so that we could try to maneuver our tests to the one that can give us the quickest turnaround time. And so, uh, of course, we didn't tell them we were doing that, but uh, we've, we've set those contracts up. And uh, just here the other day, I think earlier this week, actually, we did three COVID-19 tests and were able to get the results back within 14 hours. So that's pretty daggum good. And we're just hoping that holds up for us. But uh, those are the kind of measures that we've taken to try to increase our capacity. The other thing we're doing is uh, making telehealth a, a big part of our uh, outreach to students so that, you know, obviously if you don't feel well and you just have some medical concerns, uh, but you don't really feel sick, maybe that's not the best time to be coming into the doctor's office, but we don't want those folks not to get the care they need. So we're making the telehealth option uh, readily available for students as well. Great, lots of plans uh, in place there. So uh, that, that gives those of us on campus a lot of reassurance. Last question, and then we'll turn it over to uh, some questions from the audience. Uh, you, you mentioned something about surveillance, and I'm just wondering, is there any way we can get some early warnings or early indications uh, prior to actually getting test results back? Yeah, the, uh, it was one thing that was amazing to me when all this kind of came up was the, the folks that came crawling out of the woodwork, so to speak, that were offered to help. Uh, a lot of the researchers here on campus saying, hey, you know, I've read stuff about this. There's things that, that our lab has to offer. Uh, we were able to partner uh, with uh, Dr. Terry Hazen uh, in the, some research that he's been doing and work that he does with wastewater man, uh, uh, treatment and management. And uh, we are going to have wastewater surveillance uh, of our residential facilities that are on campus. We'll be doing that on a regular basis. Um, if a facility, let's say one of our dorms or maybe one of the Greek houses tests positive in their wastewater uh, for COVID-19 components, it doesn't necessarily mean that someone there that's residing in that facility is, is infected or infectious. It, it tells us that at some point COVID has been there. And so it helps us to know, okay, this is a place that we probably need to focus our attention. If a, if a place is negative, it doesn't mean that it's not going to show up later, but at least it's not a place that we have to focus on today. And so the next step beyond that surveillance testing with wastewater is what we uh, do with pooled saliva. Uh, one of our communicator, uh, communication experts here was uh, thinking I was saying pooled, P-U-L-L-E-D, but it's not pooled saliva, it's pooled like a swimming pool in your backyard. And so what we do is we collect these uh, little tubes. We've all, we'll be distributing these to students uh, so that they can uh, get these samples readily available for us. If we identify a facility, let's say it's a fraternity house, and we identify that, hey, their wastewater tested positive for COVID, we're going to call their director, tell them, hey, tomorrow morning, uh, we're going to be there to collect sal saliva samples. Uh, the students will prepare uh, the night before, get up the next morning. We, these have to be an early morning sample before you eat or brush your teeth or anything. So uh, the students will uh, get the sample ready. We'll have our collectors there. We'll collect the samples, get them to our pooled saliva lab. And then what we'll do is let's say there's 40 people that live in that house. We're going to break those down into groups of 10. And the folks in our research lab are going to take a little bit of saliva out of 10 tubes and they're gonna put them into one single tube. And so that's a pulled saliva sample and they're gonna test it. If that initial 10 tests negative, great, we're done with those. Let's move them to the side. We go to the next one. Now we remember we've got that wastewater that suggested something might be going on in this facility. That's why we're doing this. So now we're testing this next group, it's positive. So now we know that somebody in that group of 10 individuals is likely positive. Uh, so what we're going to do at that point is try to break that down into a smaller group of maybe three to five. 
And once we get the smallest group possible, then we're going to ask those individuals to go to the Student Health Center and actually have an individual COVID-19 test performed. We'll put those folks in quarantine uh, until we get those results back. And then um, once we have those results back, make appropriate decisions from there. By using this surveillance, it helps us to identify patients that are asymptomatic, but still could potentially be infected, or those that have no clue that they've had any kind of exposure risk. We're assessing for symptoms. We're doing surveillance for symptoms and for exposure every day when you do your health check app. That tells us whether or not you've potentially been exposed. If you, if you read the wording on that, what we say is we don't say, do you know that you've been exposed? You know, that, that you've definitely been, it's do you think you have been? It's a concern that we're getting at. So we're doing the symptom surveillance and the exposure surveillance to that health check but then we're doing the actual testing surveillance through this wastewater and pooled saliva. Great, thank you. So uh, it's good to know there's an early warning system out there, so to speak, uh, for our residential students uh, in particular. So. Yeah, and I, I would tell you, Tim, the, the great thing about this for our residential students here uh, is that this is something that we're doing on campus that's actually not being done in the community as a whole because you, you just don't have that capacity in the community. It's just the particular setting that we have here that we're capable of doing it. So we said, why not go ahead and proceed with that? It probably will drive more people to get tested. Uh, and there's going to be a lot of people that get tested that it's going to be negative. So it may increase a little bit of concern. Uh, but hopefully with our turnaround time, they won't have to be too concerned for too long. Very good. So we'll, uh, I think, be moving then to uh, answering some other questions, Lisa. But in the meantime, I want to make sure Dean Beal heard that uh, Dr. Gregg's daughter, Ann, was coming to campus uh, this fall as an incoming freshman and will be confirming that she is, in fact, a Herbert College of Agriculture major. If she's not, we'll do some counseling. So. <laughs> you know, if she's pre-med, we're the best place to be. <laughs> good. So questions, Lisa? So, well, no surprise, uh, Dr. Gregg and any of these questions are going to be uh, directed your way. So if you don't mind uh, indulging us on this, we would surely appreciate it. Um, talking a little bit more about testing, um, this person said that they uh, went to the health department and it took 15 days to get a test back. And so the question is, is is there a better and more efficient way that we could be doing that for faculty st and staff here on campus? Well, I can tell you that the, the turnaround time for the Knox County Health Department had been, uh, had been going up. It's now starting to come down. The turnaround time through the health department now is about four to five days. There are um, clinics, uh, urgent care clinics, within the Knox County uh, region and Sevier County uh, that can do uh, a rapid test as well. It's gonna cost you, uh, but you can get it performed in, in a quicker fashion if you do the rapid test. Uh, and then um, just talking with your healthcare provider and before you, if you feel like you need to get a test before you go in to see your doctor, just to ask them what kind of turnaround time that they're looking at. I mean, that's exactly what we're gonna be doing at the Student Health Center is we're gonna be calling the labs that we use and asking them, what is your turnaround time? And we're basing where we're sending our labs on what that turnaround time is. So you want your healthcare provider that's doing your test to be kind of uh, forward thinking in that regard as well. And it would be worthwhile for you to check to see where you could potentially get one done more quickly. I would also say, I'm sorry, but these the reference labs that we're using, they're not any different than the labs that the other doctors in this community would be using. Uh, it's just that most, most offices have only set up one contract with one outside reference lab. So we kind of took advantage of the, of the uh, administrative personnel that we have here to set up some additional contracts for us to give us a little bit more of uh, leeway with going with other uh, vendors if we needed to. And someone mentioned that medical insurance does cover the first test for a rapid test. Yes, they do. And uh, there's also um, the, uh, the cost of any subsequent tests can sometimes be covered. It really depends on how that particular visit is coded. Uh, and so that's something that needs to be clarified with your provider as well, because there's a certain way that it can be co uh, coded that uh, helps to reduce the likelihood that you're going to have to pay for that out of pocket. 
Very good. Um, well, this, this question now relates um, to people testing positive in office uh, settings. So, so let's say somebody uh, does test posit positive and uh, that person does what they're supposed to do, go home and self-isolate. Are the other people who worked around that person, are they supposed to self-isolate? Should, what, what should they be doing? So here at the university, what we would, we would like to do is if, let's say that I've had a fellow worker that I've had close contact with today and he gets notified uh, maybe that he, he tested positive and so he has to go home maybe he had some mild symptoms and still came into work, uh, which he wasn't supposed to do, but he did anyway, uh, and then chooses to leave. What really identifies my greatest risk for, for infection uh, from him is the degree of exposure I had. And what defines the, the degree of exposure is the closeness or proximity that I've had. And so the ideal is you don't want to be identified as a close contact. And the best way not to be identified as a close contact is to not get within six feet of other folks. And if you do have to get in within six feet of others, make it for as short a time as possible, certainly less than 10 minutes cumulatively, and always be wearing that mask. What the health department is telling us is from there, you know, if, if, there's a, if there's a positive case that's identified, the health department will reach out to that individual and get some history about who they've been around, where they've been. That's called a case investigation. And then from that case investigation, they identify who close contacts are. And that's what they're looking for. Six feet, 10 minutes, wearing a mask. And if you were more than six feet away, you were wearing a mask, uh, then they're not gonna consider you a close contact and your risk of exposure is gonna be minimal. Uh, so they're not even gonna recommend that you quarantine. They're not gonna recommend that you get tested. Uh, it's really that proximity that makes the big difference. So, um, I would, I would just try to keep that in mind. So now what we are doing different here on campus is if you were around someone at work and they did test positive or did have symptoms, we're okay with you staying home too until we find out what's going on with that other guy. The bottom line is we don't want it on campus if we don't have to have it here. So we're not wanting to pressure our employees to come in when there's a concern. That's the reason on that daily check that we put think we're not saying no, we're saying think. If you're concerned about a potential, then that's what we want to know about and that's what ought to be keeping you home as a concern even. So that relates to a question asked and that is if you think you may have been exposed to somebody and you do the right thing by, by uh, self-isolating at home, is that something that we have to charge the sick leave or uh, now that's a, there's that's a little bit out of my arena, yeah, uh, but I know that uh, I know that there are some there has been some special leave that's set aside for uh, coronavirus, and I don't know about that. That's something you'd have to get with HR on, but there would be days that I, I it doesn't eat into your annual leave, it doesn't eat into your sick leave, where it can be solely for the purpose of COVID. Tim, did you want to? Yeah, and I'm uh, I'm actually at the risk of answering. Partially correct. I'm going to ask Doug Bonner to weigh in on this so we get the actually correct uh, answer. Doug, you want to talk about that uh, special leave? Yeah, sure. I'd be happy to. So we do have uh, a UAC code that has been made available. Uh, some of our units have used it a bit more than others. And it is um, up to two weeks of time that is available for someone that needs to be out of the workspace, but for whatever reason cannot come in. The one thing I want to clarify though is that we are going to continue to be very flexible with our folks and to any extent that person can work remotely or continue their job without being on site, that's still very much our preference. So UAC is not going to be our, our go-to option if that person has the option to you know, continue their job just not here in the workspace. And that's certainly, that's what we've done at the Student Health Center. You know, if we've been concerned about a practitioner, then we'll just put them on telehealth from home mm -hmm. uh, while, while they're uh, in that convalescent time period. So Dr. Gray, you talked a, a little bit about the importance of that six foot uh, distance and um, really staying as much out of that space as possible. This person is asking, 
that if you're beyond that six feet, is it still important to wear a mask? Um, there's a lot of debate about that apparently. And so they're asking is, you know, should you still have the mask on if you're past that six feet? Well, what the CDC actually recommends is that if you are unable to maintain that six feet of distance, then you should wear a mask. Um, and so the straight answer to that would be no, if you've got six feet of distance, then you don't have to wear the mask. But there's so many nuances to that. That may mean one thing if you're six feet away from somebody inside an elevator versus six feet away from somebody outside in your front yard. And I would certainly feel more comfortable about not wearing that mask in my front yard than I would in an elevator. And so I think you've got to kind of put a little bit of common sense in regard to when you don't want to be wearing that mask. Listen, I'm in here in the EOC every day and folks coming up and asking me questions uh, at where I'm seated. And whenever I see someone approaching my desk, uh, I pull my gator up uh, because I don't want to take it home. My wife would beat me. Uh, I've, I've got to be uh, cautious with my family members as well. So uh, I want to do as much as I can to protect myself and the folks that I love. So my tendency is to err on the side of wearing that mask. I'm not walking around with a tape measure to figure out if somebody's actually six feet away or not. So uh, I would rather err on the side of being safe. So this is a question um, you may uh, know the answer to, and it's about uh, air quality. And that is aeros aero um, the particles that can then appear in the air. So can you discuss the concentration of those particles in buildings and offices and air exchanges? And um, you know, should, if you're using a shredder, should you be wearing a mask? Those types of things. Yeah, well, I can't get into the specifics of it, but I've, I've sat close enough to the facilities guys here for long enough that I kind of have an idea about air exchanges. Uh, it does depend upon the units that you have, the types of filters that you have. Uh, but the, the uh, facilities folks have looked at the maximizing the degree of air exchange that they are having. We've asked them to do that in the facilities. We've asked them to make sure that filters have been replaced appropriately. Uh, and um, we have uh, uh, requested that uh, whenever there's the, the opportunity for fresh air to be introduced, then that's, that's what we want to be doing. Um, the use of the mask uh, in the any time that there's an aerosolization of the virus, the most common time that you're going to see aerosolization of this virus is uh, in a hospital setting where people are being made to cough uh, with medications that we give them. Maybe we're attempting to intubate someone. Uh, in patients that are very sick, they'll tend to aerosolize more of the virus. Whenever we look at the most likely means of spread of this virus, uh, it's actually through uh, respiratory droplets. And this kind of gets down into, into the weeds a little bit, but a respiratory droplet is considered to be a certain size. And that's where that six feet of physical distance comes into play. There's been pe people that have studied it and what they have, what's been shown, and this has been shown multiple times that a respiratory droplet on average, with an average cough or a sneeze, is not, not likely to travel more than six feet of distance. Whereas aerosolization is a much smaller particle, and it usually has to be caused by a deeper cough uh, or uh, a deeper breath that's taken in or some type of procedure. And that aerosolization potentially can also carry the virus. It can travel more than six feet. But in their usual routine daily activities that we're doing, most people, unless they're severely ill, that aerosolization is going to be less of a likelihood, less likelihood of a of means of spreading that infection. It's the respiratory droplet that is the more common means. And, and so that's why the mask is so important, uh, not only to protect you, but to protect others as well. So could you shed some light on campus infection and um, is there a level at which the campus might go back to being completely online? Like have you, have you established that threshold? Well, we're looking at, at a bunch of different parameters. We look at the number of uh, cases that are positive that we have on campus as well as in the community. We look at hospital capacity, the kind of things the community would look at. 
On campus, we look at the number of isolation spaces that we have yet available to utilize if we were to need. Um, we'll look at what our surveillance testing is showing to us. There won't be one thing that would make us say, oh, that's it, we gotta shut it down. And I don't know that you would necessarily see happen what happened in the spring. I don't know that we would see that again, where it's just, okay, we're going online, everybody go home. Uh, it would be more of a measured response. Uh, it might would be that we're gonna have online classes for X number of days and then uh, go back to uh, classes uh, in person. Uh, but we're going to be taking a much more measured response uh, uh, going forward than what we had. We, we know so much more now than we did in the spring that, that we don't feel like that that's the kind of response that we necessarily need to proceed with. So this is sort of interesting. You were talking about hospitals. So interesting, uh, not directly related to the campus, but um, your thoughts on elective surgery. If you were scheduled to have it, would you still pursue that? Right now? <laughs> well, I tell you, my daughter did have elective surgery, uh, but we we waited until the time that the uh, UT Medical Center had approved for that to occur. I can tell you that the um, the infection rate within your community should make a big impact, and I think really it depends on what your surgery is that you're going to have done. Uh, and, and I, I hate to sound like I'm punting it, but that's really more of a one-on-one a -on -one question that you and your healthcare provider should have because there's so many variables that come into play there. So we've had a lot of questions um, about masks and uh, the requirement. So um, I'm gonna try to synthesize all these different questions we're getting on this, but I think the bottom line is, when do we require mask wearing, for instance, on campus. So uh, people are saying it's very uncomfortable when they are in a workspace and there are people that are just defying the order they aren't, they aren't wearing them. So uh, they are saying the same thing about students. Um, you know, when is it, when we're back on campus and people are just walking down the sidewalk, uh, <laughs> you know, some wearing a mask, some not, when should we be? Could you kind of give an overview of well, I can tell you one thing that, that makes people want to wear a mask. If you walk around with a scrub top on, uh, people flop that mask up and nothing flat. Uh, so uh, that's one thing I've seen. But uh, so assuming you don't have a scrub top, what could you do? Well, you know, we're trying to make wearing a mask cool. Uh, we're putting out a campaign uh, directed uh, towards faculty, staff, and students to encourage uh, folks to wear a mask. Uh, I noticed that uh, some of the folks here in the EOC are actually accessorizing their uh, uh, other clothing with their masks. So that's kind of going on. Uh, there's uh, my son uh, did a, uh, a fundraising thing with where he goes to school uh, with the emblem, uh, the school emblem on their mask. So I think, you know, we're trying to encourage as best we can, but you're still going to have folks that just, you know, for whatever reason, choose not to abide by it. Uh, certainly there's nothing wrong with telling someone that you prefer them to wear a mask, but I understand reservations in regard, you know, how someone might react to that. What we're requesting employees uh, to do and even students to do, if they're running into that occasion, uh, if it's an employee that's refusing to wear it, that can be an HR issue. We would encourage you to go to their supervisor and to uh, let them know. Um, you don't feel like you have to take that on yourself, uh, but get their supervisor involved in that. Um, and then from a student standpoint, it potentially can be a student conduct issue. And there, we will have measures in place to address that uh, when it's brought to our attention. Let me just add a comment or two there. And Spencer, that's exactly the way I think we need to operate. We don't need to be the mask police, but uh, if, if every one of us is modeling the right behavior, then the person not wearing a mask starts to stand out as, as the oddball, if you will. So, you know, if we'll all do our part, I think it will, really incentivize and pressure, peer pressure, uh, for everyone else to, to abide by uh, wearing masks as well. And if that doesn't work, you know, let uh, communicate with supervisors, don't, don't confront folks uh, directly. Faculty though should, should ask uh, students who don't have a mask on, invite them to, to wear a mask and give one that, that you can uh, have available. And there are stocks of masks that our faculty can request so that they can carry them with them. Uh, for those face-to-face -face classes they may be teaching. 
And if it's a repeated offense, uh, as, as Dr. Gregg mentioned, we'll pursue it as a code of conduct uh, violation. But let's try to do it through education, through through really expecting people to do the right thing. And uh, you know, I believe we'll, we'll be most successful that way. And Tim, here's one for you about um, the guidelines that are talking about the number of people allowed in a meeting. Are we still at 50 and using all precautions? Yeah, so we are still at 50 and that's a, that's a actually statewide. Uh, that's not just UT and it's not, not just Institute of Agriculture. That, that's the statewide limit. But I think obviously we got to use common sense about every one of those. So that's 50, 50 people provided there's social distancing, provided we've got provisions for hand sanitation and masks and, and all these other measures. So it's, it's not just packing 50 people in a room and saying, well, we're, we're within the rules. It's taking all the right steps uh, in, in conjunction with those. And then I think uh, something Spencer said a minute ago also comes into bearing, and that is a lot of our activities are outdoors. And if it's outdoors, I think, you know, again, that, that brings in some different considerations as well. I'll, I'll let this group know I, we've approved some uh, gatherings or events that involve more than 50 people, but I believe every one of them to this point has been an outdoor event. And uh, we just feel like, uh, first of all, there's more room, there's more space. And second of all, uh, that that outdoor area uh, we think reduces the the level of risk. So uh, 50 is still the the sort of magic number, but there's a lot of other things that that have to be considered too. And Tim, someone is asking, should we allow a public meeting to take place in one of our facilities, particularly those off uh, campus, and and on campus for that matter? But particularly, this person is just specifically asking about an off campus. Yeah, I think we're, we're uh, really following along the same guidelines as, as uh, what the University of Tennessee Knoxville has published in terms of meetings, events, and activities. And uh, we can uh, allow those other meetings to occur. If there are visitors to our facilities, there's a whole set of procedures we'd ask that they follow. We want them to do a self-check uh, before uh, entering campus. Uh, we want to have provisions uh, for, again, distancing, for masks, it, we're not just waving all the rules saying it's a public meeting, do what you want. Uh, we we want to make those uh, meetings also uh, be subject to the same restrictions that we're following. And there's a link on the website. We can follow up uh, with that maybe uh, in the late afternoon message, Lisa. That sounds good. Um, Dr. Greg, somebody is asking about, um, as we do start sending our children uh, back to school, um, and I think this person is, is referring potentially to elementary school and you know, K through 12, in addition to UT students. Um, is there, are there any new recommendations on how to handle that as far as protective um, recommendations? How should we send I, I, them to school? Yeah, I know that in Knox County, the option was given for uh, for parents to make a decision about whether or not they wanted to have their children go to school or to do virtual. Uh, and essentially that's, that's the decision we've made here at UT as well. And I would fu fully support that. I, I think that you would have to, I know that some reports on, on students that, and it can vary from one school to the next, but some parents have indicated that maybe they didn't feel so comfortable with the provisions that some schools have done. Others uh, feel very confident in what's taking place. So I think you'd have to take that pretty much on an individual basis. I think that the American Academy of Pediatrics uh, has, uh, has fully vetted this issue of whether or not kids ought to go back to school and overall for the, the best health uh, for these individuals, uh, for these kids would be for them to be back in school. So I support uh, what the American Academy of Pediatrics have uh, indicated in that regard. Um, sounds good. Um, we're going to do one last question and then we'll go to our wrap up. And that is um, talking uh, um, a little bit about the county offices, Tim. And I think maybe uh, Dr. Sensman could, could jump in on this as well. Uh, but there, there's a little bit of confusion with the county offices as we talk about reopening here in Knoxville. So could we have a little clarification on that? 
Or I'll kick us off, and Dr. Sensman, I'll I'll let you uh, provide some some clarity or additional information. You know, in my remarks to to start us today, I said, look, we're moving to become more accessible, uh, and that's institute wide. So that that does include our extension offices. Now, if if there's a county that has you know had really severe numbers that such that their county government is closed, that that's a different matter. But uh, if we are not precluded from from opening due to a a hot spot, if you will, then we should be moving all of our offices towards uh, greater accessibility and really looking to, to make sure that they're accessible during uh, regular office hours. Dr. Sensman, you want to add any more to that uh, in terms of our county uh, and regional offices, I suppose? Sure. Thanks, Dr. Cross. Well, uh, I think, of course, we have this phasing plan, and here a few weeks ago we initiated something we're calling an alternative phase to allow a few more people to be in the office and really just work by appointment only. Uh, and so we're still planning on having that be a part of what we do. Uh, and, and of course, some offices have different numbers of individuals in them at one time or another, but uh, I guess for us, uh, we're really looking at that phasing plan still. And every day, I think our uh, regional directors are looking at the numbers and manipulating uh, the phase, whether, which, whichever needs to be moved from phase zero up to, I guess, phase four, and then also allowing alternative phases in between. So we're really letting our regional directors uh, help us through that with the county director support to figure out which phase they need to be in. And I think that's really our best approach at this point. Good. Thanks, Scott. Great. Well, we, we do have a, um, several other questions, but um, in the interest of time, what we will do is get back to those um, of you who have asked these questions and get you answers. So, uh, Tim, do you want to wrap things up for today? Yeah, I will. And uh, first, uh, I, I'd like to ask you all to join me in really thanking uh, Dr. Spencer Gregg. Uh, Spencer, we appreciate your time, thank your you. expertise, sharing your knowledge. Uh, thank you very much for, for being with us today. Uh, very helpful and, and really good to hear from, from our, one of our own frontlines folks uh, as to uh, what we can do and how we should do it. So uh, can't can't thank you enough for that. Uh, and remember, for everyone else, uh, again, we, we've got to do our part. Uh, I'll, I'll end where I started. Uh, you know, follow the, the mask etiquette protocol that Dr. Greg just shared with us. Uh, remember the training that we've got online in Kate uh, and what it means to, to really uh, scale back up uh, in terms of our presence on the workforce. So don't forget all of that. Uh, and if you need to take a refresher like I did, uh, Go back and look at it once again there's some good stuff in there and I, I remain confident that if we follow the practices that we all talk about and they're pretty darn simple when you get down to it uh, we, we can manage through this and, and do so while we continue to serve our students and, and the rest of the state as well so I, I really want to thank everyone also for the excellent questions today I, I told Dr. Greg they'd be easy questions uh, just softballs uh, but I really appreciate the fact that uh, you were engaged and you asked questions and thanks so much for Spencer for the really informed and, and uh, helpful responses as well. And with that, uh, as always, I want to thank uh, everyone for what they do, uh, ask you to be safe, be healthy, and, and of course, uh, have a great weekend. We'll see you next week. Dr. Greg, I hope you're seeing all the thanks uh, happening in the chat. So <laughs> thanks, everyone. Have a great weekend.